You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to welcome two new sponsors to the SpyCast family, M8Z Choice and Scotty Vest. You'll hear more about these innovative companies a little later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today from the UK by Henry Hemming, who is the author of five works of nonfiction, including In Search of the English Eccentric, Misadventures in the Middle East, the New York Times bestseller, The Ingenious Mr. Pike, which is about an extraordinarily interesting man, Jeffrey Pike, who is at the center of many of the key intelligence special operations decisions in World War II. If you don't know anything about him, I suggest grabbing that book. His latest book is Agent M, The Lives and Spies of MI5's Maxwell Knight. Henry's written for the Sunday Times, Daily Telegraph, Daily Mail, The Times, The Economist, FT Magazine, and The Washington Post, and has given interviews on Radio 4 Today's program and NBC's The Today Show, and now an interview on SpyCast. So welcome, Henry. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So whenever we talk to authors who deal with anything that's specific about you know, espionage, even from the World War II time period where everything hasn't been declassified, I really want to ask a question about sources because for any intelligence historian, anyone writing about this stuff, source material can be the biggest frustration. So how much of what you've done was recently declassified? Basically, why is now the only time you could have written this book? Because of a change that took place within MI5 about 15, 20 years ago. And uh, because of that change, I think now is, um, is a golden age of, uh, of intelligence history writing, certainly um, in Britain. And uh, so this came about quite soon after the collapse of the Soviet Union, where within MI5 it was decided that, um, that they would start releasing documents which had been previously classified and um, just make them available to the public in uh, the National Archives. And, um, and this has been extraordinary. So it means that every few months, usually every kind of five or six months, there will be a big dump of previously classified stuff. And of course, some bits will be redacted, but, um, but a lot of it is not. And as a result, there is um, an absolute wealth of material. A lot of it has still not been gone through. And, um, and in answer to your question, most of my book was, um, was, was based on new material, which, um, which sheds light on Maxwell Knight. And um, it was fantastic. I mean, that, that feeling as a historian that you're going through stuff that no other historian has seen um, is just is completely thrilling. So it was uh, an exciting thing to research. And um, it's been lovely to, to put this story together for the first time into the book, Agent M. Yeah, there's nothing better 
than a feeling for a historian of seeing a document that the last time it was seen was probably by the person who wrote it or received it. Exactly, exactly. It's um, it's, it's lovely, and uh, and every now and again there will be um, a slip. Oh, there'll be something which the, the MI5 archivist did not redact, um, <laughs> which will shed light on something which maybe you're not meant to see. So, for, for example, one of the um, one of the Max Knight's agents, so a guy who was working as an MI5 agent for um, probably about 10 years in total, he's someone who um, who's never been identified. His, uh, his code name was M1. And um, I found huge amounts about him. So I got a pretty good sense of who this guy was roughly where he lived, roughly who his friends were. I became reasonably obsessed with working out his identity. And I got it down to, um, to about three possible candidates. And, um, and there was this lovely moment where in one of these really obscure files, there's a reference to somebody called HG. And, um, and initially, I, was, I thought, well, this, this doesn't work. The, uh, the initials of my three candidates, none of them is uh, first name H, second name G. But... Um, but then I realized this guy actually had a middle name. This guy was, um, was, was H.G. Pollard. He was known to all of his friends as H.G. And this is a crucial, crucial clue. And it was only because I'd, I'd seen so many other documents that this one tiny, tiny detail, which probably didn't make sense to an MI5 archivist, made sense to me. And therefore, I was able to identify this particular guy. He was uh, an extraordinary bookseller, a bon vivant, a bohemian a, uh, somebody who, who was famous towards the end of his life as being one of the great bibliographers in, uh, in British history. A guy called Graham Pollard, son of a famous academic. And it turns out that uh, for about 10 years, early on in his life, he infiltrated the Communist Party on behalf of Maxwell Knight. Um, so he ended up working for MI6 and for MI5. And uh, he even married a communist at one point to, um, I think, mainly to improve his cover. But, uh, but then he, he fell out of love with her, and I think he also fell out of love with uh, the job he was doing. And so he, um, he moved on to, uh, to, to a different life. But, um, but yeah, that was just uh, one of the things I was able to, to find out as a result of being one of the first historians to go through all of this stuff. I have a lot of overall praise for this book, but I think one of the things that really stands out to me is almost the, the detective story of you trying to piece together the identities of these agents based on just lots and lots of different information. I mean, was your house at home like one of those murder boards where there's all lines linking one person to another? Because a lot of it's fascinating, kind of how you hunker down and found all these documents with just bits and pieces of information that eventually would lead you to identify just about everybody. Exactly. And, um, and <laughs> yes, there was a time when my house was beginning to look like that. And, um, and, look, and we all know that feeling when you you find yourself on a detective trail and um, you just become obsessed with finding the answer. And the lovely thing about, I mean, it's, it's not like quantum physics, as in with these, you really know there is an answer. You know that there is an identity and you just got to work it out. So it's quite a satisfying kind of uh, detection. But what you also have is, um, I mean, not only is MI5 releasing just vast quantities of material every year, but at the same time, you have all sorts of other databases that are being digitized and put online. So you have records of, um, for example, ship manifests or um, electoral registers are increasingly going online. And basically, this means that if you're trying to identify someone, it's, um, it's 10, 100 times easier than it was 20 years ago. So a um, combination of MI5 being a bit more open about its past and the Internet and digitization 
has uh, made it a fun time to be to be doing this detective work. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the the hero of your book, Maxwell Knight, because he's not just a normal guy. He's let's call him eccentric. I think that's probably the nicest thing. Yeah, we can say about him because he's really kind of the black sheep of his family. This is a you know he was somebody who was not necessarily the same as everybody growing up in Britain at the time. He liked jazz. He liked things more bohemian things than others. And his his fascination again, we'll use a euphemism there with animals. Uh, really stands out as part of his, his background. Absolutely. He's, um, I mean, I think without being, you know, being a kind of poor man's Freud, I think a lot of it goes back to, to his dad, to, um, to his parents. He was the youngest and uh, he had a, a distant father, a distant father who was um, too busy having affairs with, um, with women who, uh, who would, would, he'd lived with them off in the south of France. So he, Maxwell Knight was desperate to get the attention of his father. And um, I think one of the ways he did that was by collecting and looking after unusual animals. And he knew that this is one of the few things that really piqued his, uh, his father's interest. So as a young boy, you're right, he, he got into looking after unusual animals. But he, um, he soon realized that he had a knack for it. He was really good, that animals would, um, would trust him in the way that they would not naturally trust other people. And I'm, I'm sort of a little bit wary of um, implying that he had some kind of magical gift um, but I, I think he just had a lot of practice. He had a hell of a lot of practice. And at the same time, he was someone who was, he was a good listener. He was a good watcher. He was naturally sensitive. So very early on, he develops this, this extraordinary ability to look after and tame just wild animals that he finds in the woods and fields around his home. And what I argue in the book is that this is one of the things that helps him become an extraordinary MI5 agent runner. So there are lots of parallels between the way he ran agents and the way he would look after these, um, these stray animals that he found. And, um, and he'd even look for agents who are quite similar to the animals he found in terms of being injured, in terms of having lost their parents, in terms of uh, just you know, being the odd, odd ones out in, uh, in various ways. So, um, so yeah, he, he, that was his way into it all, I guess. He um, also, I think, was someone who liked to be, to be known. He was quite a, liked to be a colorful character. And this is why he ended up being the black sheep of his family. Maxwell Knight was, uh, was kicked out of his family. He was cut off financially. And, um, and it's at this absolute low in his life quite early on that um, the man who had become M gets, um, gets taken on by a private intelligence agency. And, uh, and for the first time, at last, he's found a job that he can do well. And up until then, he just simply hasn't. Yeah, let's talk about the McGill organization, which you just referenced. Um, I think it's important that we lay this out for our listeners about why, and this is talking about like 1919, right after World War I ends, why was this a time, number one, that you needed a private intelligence organization? Why not just have MI5 and MI6? But also, what kind of perception in Europe, and especially in the UK, is there about how the world is changing? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the simple answer is um, the Soviet Union, that this is uh, all roads lead back to the Soviet Union, that there was a, a, an enormous fear within not just one part of British society, but in many parts of British society, that um, the country would end up becoming a socialist republic and, um, and that Moscow and international communism was, um, was agitating for this to happen. And, uh, and the place where 
the place where, where that kind of fear really matters for us in terms of what we're talking about is amongst a, a political and industrial elite. People who ran enormous companies were worried about strikes and were just worried about there being a revolution as there had been in Russia and um, them getting, getting killed in the process of that. Um, so it was self-preservation as much as love of their country that was uh, driving this fear. So this fear existed. It's um, something that I think historically in the kind of scheme of the 1920s, it's something that perhaps isn't focused on enough. Um, but it's something which, which drove a lot of people in Britain who uh, had the, the authority and the power to do so to um, try and take active measures themselves. Um, and one of the people who did that was Sir George McGill, who was, he sort of fits the stereotype perfectly, he was a, a well-off, right-wing um, industrialist. And, uh, and he decided that Moscow was in danger of, of taking over his country. And so he set up a private intelligence agency and um, began to feed different agents into every trade union he could find, into communist groups. Um, everywhere he, he thought there might be the risk of penetration by Soviet agents. And he would then report, he would pass on the information that he gathered. He passed it on to, to MI5 and to MI6, who at the time did not have enough money. And, um, and also politically, the people who were directing them didn't quite see the threat to the Soviet Union in the same way that people like McGill did. I think that, you know, for our listeners, it's, it's important for us to lay out how you talk about the not having a lot of money at MI5 and MI6, but I think that's, let's be a little more specific about that. By the mid-20s, they barely existed at all. Yeah. And there's even talk in the mid-20s of, um, of abolishing it altogether. It had no full-time agents in the mid-20s. It had um, a, a threadbare staff, less, less than 20 officers, and, um, and a handful of, of clerks and secretaries. And, um, and it was a backwater within Whitehall. It had um, very little clout. That was partly the fault of the guy who ran it, who was a um, perfectly nice, well-meaning guy who had done well during the war, but was not a good political operator. So he was someone who did not always get meetings with senior British politicians when he asked for them. So MI5 had become a backwater. It didn't have enough money. And, um, and because of just the titanic debt that Britain had incurred during the First World War, there were, um, there were cuts across government. And, um, and MI5 was, uh, was, was victim to that as much as anyone else, um, or possibly more so. So, um, so yeah, they were an absolute fraction of what they were today, what they are today. I mean, MI5 right now has something like 4,000 officers, just to, uh, to put that in perspective. So Knight was somebody who had no tra like training. We're not talking about somebody that's gone through any kind of formalized training when he's put into this McGill organization. And through really trial and error, he becomes an extraordinary agent. I, I, you know, talk about someone who's a natural for this kind of work. Absolutely. He... Um he had no, you know, no training, and this is part of what McGill actually wanted from his agents. He, um, he wanted them to be natural. He was, uh, he was wary, as Maxwell Knight would later be, he was wary of giving people too much training because they, he was worried they might then just stick out like a sore thumb. So he had almost no training. Um, and I think, funny enough, I mean, his, his training, such as it was, came from reading John Buchan novels, from reading The 39 Steps and Green Mantle and, and books like that. And, I mean, a broader point to make is... Um, a lot, of, a lot of people in British intelligence in the 20s and certainly the early 30s fell into the same category. That um, their, their main experience, because of the lack of training, their main experience of 
you know, how, how to be a spy initially would come from the novels they had read. So there's this, um, this strange and interesting and rich interchange between the, the, the myth of espionage and the reality of it. Um, but in terms of uh, Maxwell Knight inside the McGill organization, he, um, he was just, uh, he, he'd found his groove, I think mainly because he was, uh, he was careful to be patient. He was watchful. He, um, he made sure not to stand out. And, um, and he just, he, he found that he wasn't natural. And uh, very soon he found himself running the uh, intelligence department within the organization that he'd been told to infiltrate, which is kind of <laughs> ridiculous. So um, suddenly he finds himself in this incredibly powerful position. And, um, and at that moment, he makes the crossover from being a straightforward agent to being an agent and an agent runner. So he starts taking on his own agents. And um, in terms of the book, this is when I think it gets much more exciting. Um, yeah, it, this is when he begins to it. develop new craft. Right. We're not talking about a couple people here and a couple people there. We're talking about dozens and dozens of agents that he's running at the same time. Absolutely. And, um, and there's this amazing line from a report where he describes that in his first year as an agent runner, he's successfully taken on more than 50 sources. And, um, and I, I sense actually because of the person he was writing to, he, it would have been hard for him to exaggerate that. And so we've got to assume that there were quite a few people who did not take up his call to, um, to report back to him. So in other words, in the, in, in the space of a year, he has approached, I, I imagine something like 80, 90 individuals and, um, and asked them to work for him as a spy. And, um, and that's a lot. I mean, you would learn the job incredibly quickly. Um, just by practicing that much. So he, he puts himself through this incredibly um, rigorous, just um, trial and error introduction to espionage. And, um, and by the end of it, he's become incredibly good. We'll have more with Henry in a moment, but let me take a moment to tell you a little about MHZ Choice. MHZ Choice is a streaming service that features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. What's cool about this is that these are not shows you've likely seen ever before, and they have some amazing spy-related content. Things like the Weizensei saga. Now, I pronounced that right, I think. I practice it over and over. But the Weizensei saga is a cool drama about a Stasi family in 1980s East Berlin. What's really interesting is it's filmed on location at the site of the actual Stasi headquarters, which is now a museum in East Berlin. There's also Chank Batu, undercover agent. A story about a guy born in Germany to Turkish parents. He's an undercover agent with the State Bureau of Investigation in Hamburg. His ability to analyze people and situations put to good use as he works on a wide variety of cases ranging from industrial espionage and financial crimes to terror cells and political assassinations. Then you've got the Hamilton Collection. No, this is not the exploits of the uh, musically singing founding father. These are four different series that are based on and inspired by the novels of Swedish author and journalist John Julu, centering around the exploits of fictional Swedish super spy Carl Hamilton. I'm talking about hours of television focused on spy TV shows and spy movies that you've never seen anywhere else. And they look, they're really, really cool. I mean, especially, well, I won't single one of them out, but I think you can get an idea of which one I find the coolest. They also have TV adaptations from some of the world's best crime fiction writers, including Agatha Christie, Donna Leone, and Camilla Lackberg. New content is added every single week, so you'll always have something new to watch, all with English subtitles. You'll get that plus the entire MHZ Choice library, which includes over 2,500 hours of binge-worthy TV for only $7.99 a month. 
but you don't even have to pay that at first. You can try MHZ Choice free for 30 days. And even after that, if you decide to stick around, you'll save 50% off your first month. So visit mhzchoice.com slash spycast and use the code spycast at checkout. That's mhzchoice.com slash spycast and use the promo code spycast at checkout. So he's still working for a private organization at this point. At what point does Maxwell Knight start working for the British government? So he is working informally at this point for someone who works at MI6. And it all becomes a little bit convoluted and complicated. But he's working informally for a guy called Desmond Morton, who is who would later become Churchill's senior security advisor. And uh, Desmond Morton is at MI6, but this is a secret. So no one else at that time is, um, is allowed to know about this. And then um, after about three, four years of working for McGill, Max Knight gets taken on by MI6. And, um, and this is going fine, but then it all falls apart. Um, and amazingly, it's because of something that Maxwell Knight himself did. And so I won't get into the, the specifics of the turf war that, that followed, but I suppose the kind of the salient point in terms of, um, in terms of Agent M, in terms of his character's development, is that he was told not to mention his work to a particular person. And, um, and he couldn't resist doing this. <laughs> so he ends up telling the head of the special branch, um, he hints that he's back in the game, that he is... Um, working for MI6, and there follows a titanic power struggle within Whitehall, and, um, and then Maxwell Knight is kicked out of MI6 as a result of this. And I was intrigued by this when I, when I was doing the research. Um, I mean, for a book like this to really work, um, you have to have a character that can hold, can sustain 300 pages of, of dramatic tension. And, and it was this moment when I realized that Maxwell Knight was someone who could, and that he has this fundamental flaw that there he is working in espionage, and yet at the same time he is deep, deep down. He's someone. He's a bit of a show-off. <laughs> he likes. He likes to be seen. He likes occasionally being the centre of attention. And there are regular moments during his career where this becomes his uh, his his great not his, his downfall so much, but it becomes something that holds him up. And um, and I was really intrigued by this. So he gets kicked out of MI6 as a result of something he had done. But amazingly. He doesn't leave British intelligence. Instead, he gets transferred to MI5. He gets given his own section, and he gets given this extraordinary new job, which is to run MI5's first ever agent-running section. And um, so this is a big breakthrough of his life. And um, and that's where yeah, the kind of the, the plot thickens, shall we say? And this section is M section, hence the 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 moniker. Yeah. Now what what it. What is the what is the focus uh, of M the M organization the M section? It, it's it you know we're talking about early 1930s. We're not yet thinking about the Nazis yet. What 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 is M originally focusing on? It's um, again the Soviet Union. So his job was pretty simple. He had to get agents inside the Communist Party, inside the Communist underground, and try and find the connections between the Communist Party and Moscow. And up until then, MI5, as I was saying earlier, just did not have this intelligence. They didn't have the, the human resources um, inside the party. And, um, and Maxwell Knight, by that stage, does. So he's got already four or five agents inside the Communist Party. But they're not quite where he wants them. So he has to come up with a new idea, a new approach to this, um, this particular problem. And he has, um, he has this, this innovative 
um, this innovative approach to to what he's the challenge he's been given, which is to um, to take on female secretaries, um, take them on and turn them into MI5 agents, in the hope that they will then get taken on by a senior communist. Because his theory at this point is that if you want to get inside the head of a senior communist, don't just try and get someone to slowly work their way up the organization and become this, this senior communist equal, but instead just get a secretary and um, get that secretary working for the senior communist. That way you'll get inside his mind. You'll find out what's really going on in his life. And the funny thing is that by this stage, by the early 1930s, most MI5 officers think it is a massive mistake to use female agents. They, um, they think that women would be uh, too indiscreet, that they have uh, a tendency to fall in love with their targets, and, um, and they simply lack the staying power of their male equivalents. And so it's interesting, and I think impressive, that Max von Knight, on pretty much his first day in the job, says, actually, we're going we're gonna to try female agents. And um, he doesn't just take on one, he takes on at least two. And uh, so there's a lot riding on this when he, when he recruits these two women. And, um, and yeah, I suppose in some ways the kind of the meat of the, of, of the book is what happens to these two particular women. They have very different experiences of getting inside the Communist Party. Well, let, let's start with Olga Gray, uh, because, you know, she, I guess she is the, uh, the, the, the M2 Monomond has interesting stories, but Olga Gray is really kind of the heroine of this story. She is indeed. She's, um, she's a typist from Birmingham. She is uh, she's someone who had a very difficult relationship with her dad, who, um, who gave her a complex about her looks, which is, which is relevant only because at that time, for any young woman who's approached by MI5 and asked, do you want to become a spy? Your assumption is that to be a female spy, you basically have to use your, your looks. You have to seduce men to steal secrets. You have to use sex. And, and so for her to say yes was in itself a huge step. And she, um, so she comes up from Birmingham, she moves to London, and she begins to live this, um, this life of, of pretending to be a secretary and, uh, and slowly hoping that somebody within the Communist Party will, um, will take her on. Eventually they do, and, um, and she performs incredibly well. She, uh, she, she moves uh, deeper into the Communist Party. She earns the trust of all of the people that she works for. She even at one point gets taken on by Moscow as a common term courier, she's sent all the way out to India with various messages and uh, with a large sum of money to deliver to the Indian Communist Party. And, um, and she finds crucial details about Communist Party's link to Moscow, which, um, which completely changed the British government's understanding of how Moscow is operating and just, um, just the extent of their ambitions, really, within Britain. And so she, um, I won't say single-handedly, but she, she does more than anyone else working for MI5 to adjust and enhance the government's understanding of, uh, of, of Soviet espionage within Britain in the 1930s. And indeed, she's been described by Christopher Andrew in his um, authorized history of MI5 as MI5's leading agent in the, in the years between the war. So she's an amazing find. She is... Um, she was an ordinary member of the public, and Max von Knight turned her into an extraordinary agent. And, uh, and she, yeah, she ends up being the heroine of uh, this extraordinary um, spy scandal, where uh, there is a Soviet spy ring operating in a military-industrial complex in Britain. And she gets to the very heart of it. 
So she is the person running their safe house. She's the person who's been asked to take photographs for this group. And she is completely trusted by everyone inside this. And so she then provides intelligence which brings this down. There is a court case in 1938. And, um, and what was amazing was reading the accounts in the New York Times and the Atlanta Constitution and, and so on of this, um, of this dramatic court case. And you'd think that their emphasis would be on the four Soviet agents who are in the dock. Um, but the only person they can write about is Olga Gray. They, um, they describe her as, the, as Britain's counter-espionage heroine, as um, the most glamorous woman in the country, and so on. And, um, and it's, this, yeah, it's an extraordinary journey that she goes on. But there is, I mean, to fast forward just for a moment, there is, at the same time, a price that she has to pay for this. And, um, and this is one of the themes I really try and look at in Agent M. And it's the, it's, it's the cost of being an undercover agent. And Olga Gray, having spent six years undercover, telling lies to people she, she was increasingly fond of, the people she was spying on, telling lies to those people, this, um, this began to have a, a psychological impact. She uh, started to have flashbacks and panic attacks and um, an experience, I, symptoms not dissimilar to post-traumatic stress disorder. And certainly later on in life, these... Um, these became exaggerated, that um, they, they, they played more of a part in her life. And, and right at the very end of her life, actually, she, she had another nervous breakdown as a result of thinking back to the work that she had done for MI5. Yeah, I mean, a, big, a big part of her heroism was the fact that she was having some of these psychological issues before she got brought back to help break that big case that you referred to earlier. Absolutely. And that took, um, that took enormous courage. I mean, at the same time, it's something which simply has not been written about, so it's pure speculation. But at the same time, um, I think the role of Maxwell Knight in that is, is an intriguing one. You know, to what extent? To what extent did he force her or just persuade her to go back into the field after she had had this nervous breakdown? And, uh, and that, of course, is something which, you know, that's the kind of question which every spymaster today in the 1930s and 100 years from now will be faced with. At what point do you realize that an agent or a source has, um, has had enough and, um, and needs to be retired? That's um, one of the intriguing questions that, that pops up in this book. We'll hear more about Maxwell Knight in a moment, but let me tell you a little more about Scotty Vest. This is a new sponsor for the show, but the Spy Museum has actually been carrying these in our retail store for some time. That's where I first saw a Scotty Vest. I was like, these are the coolest clothes ever. Scotty Vest designs hoodies, jackets, pants, and vests that are like, well, expector gadget cool with tons of secret hidden pockets. Scotty Vest revolutionized the clothing industry with a very simple idea. People need better, smarter pockets. While this is not rocket science, it's pocket science. An engineering clothing with as many as 42 pockets comes with a laundry list of considerations and challenges. From strategic pocket size and placement to more advanced features such as the personal area network, weight management system, and TEC with a technology-enabled clothing, Scotty Vest has left no stone unturned in its quest to create the most useful and versatile garments on the market. Wear a Scotty Vest once, and you'll understand all the detail that goes into creating fully functional fashion design for your life. Look, if you're into gadgets like me, you'll dig the inside pockets that hold your cell phone, charger, headphones, extra battery, even an iPad, and a laptop. The cool thing is it's able to stop hauling an extra bag or backpack when I travel. 
because all my stuff neat, fits neatly inside my hoodie, jacket, or vest. There's even pockets for my glasses and water bottle. And RFID pockets keep my wallet and credit cards safe. So go check out the jackets, pants, hoodies for men and women. This clothing could change your life. Go to scottyvest.com spycast, and for a limited time, enter the promo code SPY and get an extra 20% off. That's promo code SPY for 20% off at Scott, the letter E, vest.com slash spycast, scottevest.com slash spycast, and use our promo code SPY. Let me, let me shift quickly to, uh, to the Germans, because we've been talking about the Soviets at this point, where now we're moving into the mid-1930s. At what point did the target become the Germans? Because you talk in the book about how communism was still the main enemy, even after when Hitler took power, communism was still the main enemy. And you talk in the, about the fact that MI5 at one point even shared intelligence with the Gestapo. So what shifted it, the focus from the Soviets to the Germans? Traditionally, the narrative has been that it was the, the Italian invasion of Abyssinia um, in the mid-30s. That was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think the, the real story is slightly different. Um, the real story is that MI5 um, accepted that Nazi Germany was the main threat um, at, at very different speeds. So different officers assess the threat differently. And, uh, and Maxwell Knight was, I think he was one of the last to really wake up to the reality of it. And, um, and of course, the reason for this is that fascism, and fascism was originally a reaction to communism. It, was, um, it began with Mussolini, and it was Mussolini's attempt to, to rid the country of communists. So for everyone who'd gone through that British 1920s political foment, there was a sense that fascism was merely defense of the nation. It was merely trying to make sure the country was safe from, um, from the Soviets. And so there was a, there was a habit of thought, which, which meant that a lot of people within MI5 and elsewhere in the country were just accustomed to thinking of fascism something that was basically benign. Um, so it took, it took Maxwell Knight a bit longer than the others. But certainly by 1938, by the Angelus with Austria, or the Angelus of Austria, to be more precise, um, by that point, everybody in MI5 was fully, fully awake to the danger. And there was no doubt in their minds that um, the other greatest threat to, to world peace at that point was um, was one that came from Berlin. What, what, what did the friendship between Knight and William Joyce, what impact did that have on how slow M came around to viewing the Germans as a threat? I think maybe that in itself, that relationship in itself didn't perhaps have an impact. I think it was, it was other things that was having an impact. But that relationship is a perfect microcosm of how M related to fascism. And so, just to give the kind of the backstory, William Joyce was a guy that, that Maxwell Knight had got to know back in the 1920s. They both joined the, the British fascisti at the same time. Maxwell Knight had done so because he was a spy, and he'd been told to get inside this organization and find out what they're up to. William Joyce joined it for the opposite reason, because he, um, he loved their work. He uh, wanted to, to do everything possible to try and defeat the Soviets. But during the course of um, them both being inside this organization, they became close friends. And, um, and indeed, not just close friends, also as rival lovers at one point, as in William Joyce married the person who was Maxwell Knight's first love. And uh, indeed, this William Joyce's first wife, his, his mother-in-law, thought that, uh, that her daughter was going to marry Maxwell Knight instead of William Joyce. So these two people were very close. 
and um, they've gone through a lot together. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't call it a straightforward relationship because there are certainly times when Maxwell Knight would write about this guy and say he's, um, he's, he's psychotic, he's neurotic, he's, uh, there are a lot of things wrong with him. But he also admired certain things within him. He admired, I think, just his virility, his um, intelligence, if that's the right word, and, um, and, and some of his humor as well. He was a funny man, there's no doubt about that, um, from all the accounts of people who, uh, who knew him well. And um, so they had this, this slightly peculiar relationship. It's an intense relationship. And um, there's also a good chance that Maxwell Knight used William Joyce briefly during the 30s as, uh, as an MI5 informant. And that, I think, again, just clouds Maxwell Knight's vision. It, um, it makes it harder for him to see William Joyce for, uh, for what he was. But then comes this extraordinary moment. And, and when I found the evidence of this in the archives, I was just um, flabbergasted. There, there comes this moment just uh, four days before the outbreak of the Second World War where William Joyce gets a call in the middle of the night on the phone from somebody who says that he's due to be arrested. And um, as a result of that call, William Joyce then flees the country. He goes off to Germany. He becomes Lord Hawhaw. He becomes uh, the main Nazi propagandist broadcasting into Britain. And somebody who had, had a real impact, who, um, who had millions and millions of listeners and who, um, who was seen as, as a serious threat. The person who gave that call to William Joyce, who made that call rather, was, it turns out, Maxwell Knight. And um, I remember just being stunned by this. And it's, um, I don't think he did it for political reasons. I think he did it purely out of, uh, out of loyalty and friendship. That he felt that he owed William Joyce um, just the knowledge that he was going to be arrested. I don't for a second believe that, that he wanted William Joyce to escape. But that was, without doubt the biggest mistake of his career, of Maxwell Knight's career. And, um, and I suppose the kind of the climax of Agent M is, is basically Knight trying to atone for this mistake. It's him trying to see what he can do now that the war has begun to not, not so much kind of take revenge on British fascism, but to try and, um, yeah, adjust the, uh, his, his legacy and, um, and respond to British fascism in a way that would keep the country safe. Well, clearly, clearly it's been decades and no one else has found this little piece of information until you did. How likely is it that M's contemporaries at MI5 would have known that he was the one that made that phone call? It's very likely. And I've seen the evidence that um, there were suddenly fellow officers in MI5 who, um, who knew about this. And it's funny, I mean, there's also evidence that one night initially denying it and then later saying, yes, I did make the call, but I didn't say what you think I said to William Joyce. And, um, and I think just in the kind of the, the maelstrom of the opening few months of the Second World War, which is when this was found out, it just got forgotten. There were, um, there were so many other things going on. This is not something that, um, that enough people could really focus on. So I think I mean, the short answer is some people knew about it, but not everyone. So it had to be pretty extraordinary in Britain during the war at this time, especially the spy mania at this point, because it would be hard to think otherwise with all the ease of the German victories throughout Europe that there were spies throughout all these countries that, you know, no one really understood the German war machine at that point. So the perception, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was that there was a fifth column in each of these countries helping to, helping to defeat the army. 
Uh, how much did that hysteria come into Britain? And you know, I would imagine Knight would have been at the center of it. Mm. It, it came in a lot. It was uh, an established trope in um, in the press, and, uh, and it was an idea that caught on very easily. It's um, largely because it was so similar to an idea which caught on before the First World War, the, um, during the, the invasion scares and the invasion literature that followed. The idea that, that basically every German living within Britain or any English man or English woman who had German heritage was potentially a spy. That idea was, was simple. It was, um, it was insidious. It caught on easily. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a big deal. Um, and there was there were some smatterings of evidence to suggest that this this could actually be could actually be real, and certainly for Max von Knight and those in MI5 it was absolutely real, and um, and this is a I mean it's a curious thing to to describe as a historian because in some ways you have to you've got to describe what they were feeling at that time and and the evidence that they had, but also you have to come down in a fairly judgmental fashion to work out if they were right to feel that. And um, and of course, some of what they were, some of the, the judgments they made about the threats that Britain faced, given what they knew, they were absolutely fair. And the strange thing is, we also know now that there, there was no fifth column, absolutely none. There was no network of, uh, of, of British people with, with German heritage, or indeed just Germans living in Britain, who had formed a coherent pro-Berlin network. Um, and yet, that fear existed. And... Um, as we all know, just from the history of, of any country under invasion or under the threat of invasion, this, um, this same fear will rear its head again and again. So um, it's understandable where it came from. Um, and in this case, it was not uh, justified. Not, not taking anything away from, from their fears, because I totally understand uh, where they're coming from. I'm wondering, though, if the, uh, the obsession with some kind of a fifth column or German spies meant they overlooked spies sitting right in front of them. And the what reason I'm asking this is because uh, a very famous spy uh, worked for Knight, Anthony Blunt, uh, who uh, I guess you write in the book that M maybe suspected him of being a spy but had no evidence. Uh, how much did we kind of look the other way? I know, I know, you know, there have been recent movies that have focused on like Karen Cross and others uh, that have said, you know what, the, the Soviets aren't the priority now, the Germans are the priority so we'll kind of take this up later on. Was that the case with Blunt? I mean, it seems pretty clear that M was knew that he was a Soviet spy. But how much did that matter at the time? It mattered a lot to M. It mattered a huge amount. And um, and it is. It, I mean, it's a fascinating question. I, I think the majority of people I know, the majority of officers in MI5, did not for a moment think that the Soviets could have possibly got any agents inside MI5. And, uh, and certainly when Max von Knight had the suspicion of Blunt, which was during the Second World War, the idea was dismissed by a lot of people in MI5 as, as just absurd as something that was like, yeah, like sort of, um, imagining that you've seen the Loch Ness Monster. It was um, it, the kind of the thinking within MI5 and MI6 at that time was that Moscow simply did not have either the will to put agents inside British intelligence, let alone the capability. And, uh, and this is an idea which, which was supported cleverly by the Soviet Union itself. This idea they were completely bankrupted and they were um, on their last legs and they, they couldn't possibly um, mount an operation like that. Um, and it's, uh, Maxwell Knight was, was largely on his own. And, uh, and as you said, the problem was he didn't have evidence. 
there was a moment when Anthony Blunt tried to move into Maxwell Knight's section, but Maxwell Knight refused. He said he didn't want that man working under him. And I've spoken to, to Knight's nephew about this, and um, apparently he, he described his uncle talking um, frequently about how he suspected Blunt was hiding something more than his sexuality. And it, was, um, it really came down to just an instinctive feeling about this person. He, uh, as I say, did not have the evidence, but he knew there was something not quite right about him. And, um, and I think that maybe that, again, goes back to him as a boy learning to read all these different animals and becoming later on in life an incredibly acute judge of character. And this is something that other people who got to know him or who worked for him would describe, how he had this ability to get to the nub of someone's personality in a very short space of time. And I think that is what happened here. And at the same time, there was absolutely, there was not enough appetite within MI5 for the idea of there being a Soviet agent in their midst. It was just um, an outlandish idea at that time. And, and of course, what gave Maxwell Knight a, a second wind in his career was when it turned out that he had been right. And so in the 50s, when the extent of Soviet penetration of British intelligence and just British society became known, Maxwell Knight had his, uh, had his moment um, because he was the person who had predicted it all along. He was seen as a, as a Cassandra figure. And, um, and I think that extended his career within MI5 for um, possibly five, almost ten years, just the fact that he was right about uh, Soviet penetration. Well, a, lot of, a lot of hindsight historians like to look at, you know, the minute VE Day happened, the Cold War began, and all of a sudden everybody switched automatically from the Germans to the Soviets. How long did it take MI5, uh, once the Second World War ended, to shift their focus back to the Soviet threat? Was it right away, or did it take until, like, maybe, you know, when Burgess defected McLean? Absolutely right. The, um, the latter. It was, um, it was absolutely not right away. And, uh, and initially, some of the greatest threats um, in terms of MI5's priorities were, in fact, um, Israeli terrorist groups like um, Ergen or the, um, the Stern Gang, um, who, which, which, of course, affected um, British colonial possessions at that time. And uh, there was a danger, there was a fear that um, those groups would soon start targeting the British mainland. Um, so that was seen as more of a threat. Um, there was the Irish question. Um, but there was also there was also a fear that um, that, that Nazi Germany might somehow um, come back to life, or at least there would be um, that fascism was not entirely dead. So um, it took I mean, it basically took five six years for the focus to fully fully turn to the threat posed by Moscow. And uh, and again, I mean, I, I think during the first couple of years that was justified based on the evidence that they had, um, but during the next few years, less so. Well, a lot of times when we look at former directors of major agencies like this, they kind of they have a quiet retirement. They you know fade off into the sunset. They go fishing. Uh, I think to Jim Clapper, who's the former DNI, just finished his job, just dying to just disappear. Uh, and, and if people remember, if they watched some of the, the hearings from a couple of weeks ago, how annoyed he was to have to be back answering some of these questions. He just wants to go live the rest of his life in peace. Knight had a pretty significant second career after working in British intelligence. Yeah, he did indeed. And the amazing thing is that it actually it, it overlapped with his career in British intelligence. So during the 1950s, while he was still working at MI5, Maxwell Knight reinvents himself 
as a BBC natural history broadcaster. So he starts doing hundreds and hundreds of radio programs, TV programs, writing books, all about his, um, all about his animals, about different pets that he's had or uh, unusual animals that he's read about and, and learned about. And he becomes this, this David Attenborough figure, someone who is um, incredibly popular. He's much loved. He, uh, he comes across as very avuncular and sort of friendly and, and, and familiar and, and stable. And, um, and, he, and he especially broadcasts to children. So there's a whole generation of people in Britain who grew up knowing his voice um, but having no idea whatsoever that he was this top MI5 officer and, as I would argue, the greatest agent runner in MI5's history. Um, but he managed to combine the two. And, uh, and of course, this is one of the threads of the book, that actually these, these two parts of his life very much informed each other and complemented each other. The two parts being, on the one hand, his espionage, on the other hand, his, his naturalism. And, uh, and there's a fascinating interplay between these. Let me ask you this final question because people have heard the term M. Uh, you know, anyone who's watched a Bond movie uh, is familiar with this term. How, did Fleming and Maxwell Knight know each other? Did they? I mean, Fleming, of course, was in British naval intelligence. Was there overlap? Why was was it just random, uh, or is there a story behind this? So, there, I, mean, I think there are two things to say. First of all, in terms of Fleming and Maxwell Knight, I just don't know if they actually met. But what I can be sure of is that Fleming would have heard of Maxwell Knight and, um, and have known that he was calling himself M. And uh, I think, I mean, the, the kind of main thrust of my argument here is that within British intelligence, during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, if you'd ask anyone working for MI5, MI6, naval intelligence, you name it, if you'd ask them about M, chances are they would have thought you were referring to Maxwell Knight. He, uh, he was known as M throughout his career. He insisted from day one that this is what he was referred to as. He had a section called M section, as you pointed out earlier. His agents were called M1, M2, or MA, MB. And he was someone who liaised um, throughout the intelligence world. So it wasn't just MI5 that he, uh, that he operated within. And for that reason, I think he has the, the strongest claim to be the M of British intelligence. There's a perfectly good chance that Fleming may have actually met Maxwell Knight. But, um, but if he did, I, I don't know about it, as in I don't have the actual evidence. Well, and, and he would have been dramatically lower in rank at that point. I mean, Maxwell Knight was far, far ahead of Fleming in the Second World War as far as their responsibilities are concerned. Yeah. I mean, they had um, absolutely... But I suppose sort of beyond that, just socially, they certainly had some friends in common. And I think, you know, in answer to your question, I don't think it would have been a professional um, meeting. I think they might have met socially. Um, certainly Maxwell Knight knew the head of MI6 um, and some of his friends. And, and this guy was also friendly with Fleming at that time. So there's a perfectly good chance they would have been staying in the same, uh, the same house for a weekend during the war. That's um, not inconceivable. But I think, I mean, the main inspiration for the character M in, in, in Fleming's James Bond books was, um, was John Godfrey, his, uh, his boss right. in naval intelligence. But I think the kind of secondary inspiration, i.e. why he chose the letter M of all the letters, I think that can be traced back to Maxwell Knight. We would like to thank MHZ Choice and Scotty Vest for their support of SpyCast. Remember, you can try MHZ Choice free for 30 days. 
And after that, you will save 50% on your first month by visiting mhzchoice.com slash spycast and use the code spycast at checkout. And go to scottyvest.com slash spycast. That's scott, the letter E, vest.com. And for a limited time, you can enter the promo code SPY to get an extra 20% off. Well, the book is Agent M, The Lives and Spies at My Fies, Maxwell Knight. I, I recommend this on several levels. One, it's a fantastic spy story from a period in history that is particularly the pre-World War II stuff that we don't necessarily pay enough attention to. But for any budding historians out there or anyone interested in how this work gets done, this is truly a kind of detective mystery of putting together the pieces to try to discover the real identities of uh, these particular agents. And that, that, to me, was the most fascinating. Uh, so, Henry, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We look forward to having you back with your next book that comes out. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL Spycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.